We're going to get started with uh, continuing through Galatians. If you're new um, to NBC, welcome. There's a little welcome card uh, in front of you uh, in the chair there. We'd love to have you fill it out. Uh, if not there, there's a little kiosk in the entryway. If you're uh, a little bit more Silicon Valley, you can uh, check in with us that way on the city, uh, just so we can kind of get to know you. You can kind of check out the church, what the church has to offer, and um, who we are, and, and that sort of a thing. Uh, children, we're welcome. To, uh, we're thrilled to have you guys stay in with us uh, first Sunday of the month. Happy to have you around. So love the extra energy that you guys bring. I want to start this morning by asking, um, how many of you have been on a really, really long trip before? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. What I want to do is I want to hear what some of these long trips were. Okay. So um, uh, how about how about you, Melissa? Okay. Started here in in San Jose. Okay, so here to Utah, how long take you? Uh, about 17, 18 hours. Okay, that sounds like a long car trip. Someone else? Paul? Uh, Colorado to California. Colorado to California. Okay, you were going, did you say hi on the way by? Because oh. you guys were driving right by. <laughs> okay, how many hours roughly? Uh, two days. Two days? Okay. Uh, Ruth? Non-stop flight to Germany. Non-stop flight to Germany. Okay. That's here. Okay. Over to here, 12 hours, okay? Someone got one longer than that? Ron? From here to Korea to China. Okay, here, we'll go this way, to Korea to China, okay? How many hours total on that one? 14. 14. Cassie, you got one? From China? To California, okay? That was a good, that was a good long trip, huh? So, so I bring up trips because of this. I don't know if you ever marvel at this, but when you're on a, when you're on a plane ride, um, let's take, let's take China to California that Cassie just mentioned. You realize that you're flying at over 500 miles per hour, right? Unless you took a little tiny plane, which is something different. But you're flying 500 miles per hour. And for hour upon hour upon hour, you're flying, for instance, over this ocean. And it makes you realize just how gargantuan this ocean is. I got to fly over the Sahara Desert one time, and as I'm flying, I'm at 10,000 feet, I'm flying 543 miles per hour, according to my little seatback monitor. Okay, I'm tracking this, because I need to know the speed for some reason. And all I can see, it's perfectly clear, all I can see from 10,000 feet is plain white sand. Catch this, for hours. It's massive. And I go, that is one giant sandbox. It's huge, right? When you pull back and you think about the globe, I tend to really like decorating with the world, I realize. I have a map in my house that shows the entire world, and it's bigger than Pastor Ben, okay? Way bigger. I have this in my office. This sits in my office. And part of what I like to do is I like to think about this this planet that we're on and I like to think about it from God's perspective, okay? Now, take God traveling from China to California. Um, this isn't really how it is. We know that, but it kind of helps give us a little picture, right? How hard is it to get from China to California? You're like, whoop, that's it. It's just right there. How about, how about the North Pole down to the South Pole? Easy. Weather, wind, nothing, none of that's a problem, right? It's just, it's just easy because from God's perspective, all of these places are, are, are right there. To kind of help give us a, an image, it's not just that he has the whole world in his hands. 
what, what would all of you be representing? You'd be representing maybe stars and galaxies and other planets and that sort of thing. You know what? He's got it all just, just right here in the palm of his hands. I want to bring this up because of this. God has a worldwide movement that he's doing right now. I want you to go back in time with your mind for a second and just imagine that you're some of the very first disciples. Now, here's what's really cool. We have disciples of Jesus sitting in this room. Isn't that powerful? But imagine you're amongst the very first disciples of Jesus. Okay, pick one of them in your brain. And imagine what it would be like to have been there when Jesus rises from the dead, hangs out with you for a bit, eats fish with you for a bit, gives you some words and instruction for a bit, and then as he's talking, he begins to ascend. That's a fancy word for rises up off the ground. And he's going, and right before you, he goes up into heaven. Now, what are the disciples doing at that point? Does anyone remember? If you ever forget, just think about what you would be doing at that point. Okay, here's what it would be. Right? Now, what happens? Two angels show up and basically say this. Hey, show's over. Go get to it. What did Jesus tell us to do? To go and make disciples. And by the way, he's going to come back just the same way that he left. I wonder if their minds went back to a little incident that Luke records in Luke 24. He says this. Then he, talking about Jesus, opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. He's going to be preached to all the nations. And it's going to start right here in Jerusalem. Now, these same disciples are, are meeting together. They're in Jerusalem. They're doing what Jesus told them to do. And along comes Paul. And you know what Paul comes and says? Paul comes and says this. I've met the risen Jesus face to face. He's given me a message. And guess what he told me to do? He told me to go and preach to all the non-Jewish nations. That would be the Gentiles. And I bet the disciples thought, no way. This is, this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. That he's going to preach, be preached to all the nations, but he's going to start here in Jerusalem. Here's what Jesus kept doing. Jesus kept trying to take the disciples and lift their eyes, lift their vision from kind of the tiny, small worldview that they had about what Jesus was doing and what he was about, and he kept trying to, to, to lift it for them. Now, if I were to come and find uh, Jerusalem on here, if you're if you're a Jew, then your nation is highly important to you. Not unlike our, our own, but even more so. But here's Jerusalem. Okay, here's, here's the nation of Israel. Now, I can't even get my finger. I'll even use my pinky nail. I can't even get my finger small enough to find this little tiny pinpoint that is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a massively important city. I don't care if you're a Christian or not, Bible believer or not. It's just been a really important city over the ages. What Jesus is saying is this. Disciples. I didn't come to just rescue you from Roman rule. I didn't come to just, to just save you out of, your, out of your little problem, but I came to save the entire world. Not just from oppression from a, an empire that's going to that's gonna be here today and gone tomorrow, but I'm going to rescue people from their sin, catch this, for all time, for all of eternity. Now, don't we do the same sort of thing? 
we, 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 don't, we, we know maybe that God's got this massive global movement going on of grace, and yet here's what sometimes our prayers get stuck in. God, I'm being oppressed by my teachers. They keep giving me homework. Would you deliver me? Be my savior out of this homework, right? Or, or we say, God, thank you for healing. Your great and mighty healing power has healed my clutch, and now I can drive to work. Thank you, God. You really are the great Messiah and Savior. Now, I don't want you to stop praying those prayers. Does God care about the little things in our life? Say yes. Yes. Keep praying. Keep going to him with all of those. Lay hands on your car and ask for healing. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to lift your vision. I don't want you to get stuck in the tiny little, tiny little pinprick that, that Israel was. Or just the tiny little pinprick that San Jose is right now. But to lift our eyes and say, wow, God's doing something so much more, so much bigger. If you're going to write something down this morning, would you write this down? The same one true gospel is good news. That's what gospel means, right? For all people, everywhere, for all time. This is the driving point of what we're looking at and what the passage talks about this morning. Now, if we look last week and kind of review where, where he was at in chapter 1, Paul kind of gives us his travel blog. Remember that? And what he was trying to show us was this. My message is right from God. I got it directly from God. I didn't go to the apostles and get trained at the Jerusalem seminary and just get it handed down. I, I got it directly from God. And so he kind of shows us his travels and unfolds that for us. Today in chapter 2, he's going to make a point of the fact that he went to Jerusalem to basically show that they were in alignment with each other, Paul and the other apostles. Why is he doing that? He spends a good portion of chapter 1 distancing himself from that reality, and a good portion of chapter 2 saying, look, I went to Jerusalem, and us and the other disciples are in alignment. So we're going to kind of look at why, why is that uh, this morning. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for how it speaks to us, uh, sometimes, God, in the most unexpected ways. I pray this morning we'd have expectant hearts to hear from you. And Lord, uh, in this letter that we're looking at that Paul wrote to people halfway around the globe centuries ago, we believe and expect God to hear from you as it's the living and active word from you. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of us who are Christians, um, we're excited about Jesus. And we love, to talk, we love to talk about what we're excited about. And if you've ever started to talk about Jesus to someone and begin to share your faith, surely you've been in conversation and you've kind of just either had a sense about it or you've, or you've really just, just felt it that there, that there were walls going up. That between you and the other person, as you began to share the gospel, there were just, there were just walls going up. The gospel and culture have always been at odds. Therefore, there are always these, these kind of barriers that go on with that. And that was certainly true for Paul. Paul was facing barriers as he was preaching the gospel to people in Galatia and uh, in Philippi and all these different places. And um, if, you are, if you are a, uh, a, a person in Paul's culture, the, 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 one of the main ones he was facing, one of the main barriers was this. It had to do with religious rituals 
and the details of how to worship. Now, imagine you're a missionary, and you were to be a missionary from our culture, and you were to go over, let's just pick the Middle East right now, okay? If you were to kind of, if you were to kind of go to Middle East and maybe North, North Africa, the Horn of Africa, then as a missionary, you would need to figure out, how do I as a Christian going into a very Muslim-centered part of the world, how do I go in and be a witness and, and bear witness to Jesus and bring the light of the gospel in a way that will be understood. What you don't want to do is change the gospel. We're going to talk about that. The gospel is central to it. You don't want to change the gospel. But kind of like you might offer the same liquid, water, H2O, in many different kinds of cups, depending on the age. It might be a sippy cup. It might be you know a coffee cup. It might be a, a nice glass, whatever it would be. So it is with missionaries who would go into a culture and say, how can I present this so that people will listen to me? In some parts of the world, if you're a missionary in that part of the world, for instance, if someone heard you were an evangelical Christian, they might come to you and they might ask you one question. They would lead with this question, and depending on your answer to it, uh, it, it, might, it might shut the conversation off before you ever get past hello. Here's what the question probably would be. It would probably be, what do you think about Muhammad? That would probably be the dividing line for them to say, are we going to continue to have a conversation about this or not? Now, as a missionary, we, we, we need to heed the words of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? He said this, be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. I believe that as a missionary going into a culture, you need to think through how you're going to answer. Does it mean that you lie or are conniving or peddle the gospel in some underhanded way? Of course not. It's not what Jesus did. But, but answer me this. Did Jesus give different answers depending on the scenario and depending on who he was talking to? Absolutely he did. Hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes or not? To me, that's the epitome of his answer with that, was just the epitome of being wise as a serpent but innocent as a dove. It's just a, it's just, it's just a great answer that he gives. And if you don't know what that is, go, go look it up. It's a good one. Now, here's ours. Think about our culture for a second. Think about what question would be presented. Oh, you're one of those Christians. What question might, might come up? Now, if you're talking to other Christians and you're saying, what, what do Christians divide about or what do they argue about? Uh, there's all kinds of people. If someone comes in to me as a pastor of this church and they say, um, what's your view on membership? How do you guys work membership? You know what I know? I know that they're a, a, a church person at least and quite possibly a Christian because they're concerned about church membership. Hey, what are your views on the Holy Spirit? What do you guys think about missions? Are you guys into missions or not? Those are, those are Christian questions. Here's a really recent one. Do you guys celebrate Halloween or not? Right? Now, these are, these are things that Christians can kind of come together on and dialogue and debate and kind of, kind of discuss things. If someone's coming with those kinds of questions, I know that they're a church person or probably a Christian. You know what people who are not from the church, they're not asking any of those questions. Those are not the questions. Hey, do you guys celebrate they don't. That's something on their radar, Right? Let me give you what I think, I try to think back. Like, what are my top two real-world questions that people ask? Now, they'll ask it in different ways. It comes in different kinds of forms. But, but here's number one. What do you think about other religions? You're a Christian. You're a Christian at a Bible church. Oh, okay, I have a question for you. Fire away. What do you guys teach? What do you guys think about other religions? 
Now, this used to be maybe more just our area, but I think this is growing nationwide, a follow-up question, or really a secondary. It's, it's probably second for top, top place. Here's the second one. What do you guys think about homosexuals? These are probably, real world, two of the most common questions that I get when I begin to share that I'm a Christian, mention I'm a pastor, talk about Jesus, share that I went to church this last Sunday, whatever else. In general, in our culture, we've, we are leaving almost nothing to shame. Are we agreed on that? I mean, just it's almost anything's fair game. There's one sin in our culture. You know what it is? Intolerance. That's it. I mean, you, you can do almost anything, and people don't even blush at it. They don't even call it out at all. But if you appear intolerant, if you commit the heinous sin of intolerance, then, then you're labeled, in essence, this is what's interesting, a sinner. For, for people who don't really like that word and don't really enjoy it in, in other contexts. Now, what I think these two questions are, I think they're kind of like a litmus test for your tolerance level. And in answering this, here's what you need to realize. As you take the gospel and you begin to, to put it into culture and say, God, how, how is it going to look? We know the gospel is not going to change. We know that you don't somehow save people differently in 2013 than you did in the 1500s. But the way that we talk about it, the way that we preach it, the way that we present it, the way that we interact with it is going to change over time. So, God, would you help us as your people to remain faithful to this and to begin to engage in that? What's almost always true with these two questions is there are a whole bunch of questions and experiences underneath the question. A lot of times, if you were to just ask flat out back, um, you know, why is it that you want to know? Are, are you a homosexual or do you know someone that's a homosexual and is that what you're wrestling with? And that's not it necessarily. Is there, another, is there a specific religion that you had in mind that you wanted to talk about? Are, are, are you from a different faith? That's not always it. A lot of times what starts to emerge as you begin to engage with someone is this. They want to know, is God fair? Is the God you're talking about fair? Here's the secret Christians know. No, he's not. Praise God. Do you want what you deserve? Not me. (laughs) Man, just this week, right? Just this week, what I deserve? Justice? I don't want justice. I want to move way beyond mercy. I want God's flooding grace in my life. That's why, that's why you see people tearing up and cheering and, and singing like we do. How great is our God? Fortunately, he's not fair. Now, I don't usually lead with that because people don't get that, so I'll kind of lead them to that point. But praise God, he's not fair. But that's what they want to know. It's not unfair to say that there's one way and, and not another way. Really, through some simple logic, you begin to start talking about actual religions and say, do you see how these two can't both be right? Right? Um, so, so as we engage with this, as we talk with this, we, 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 need, to be, we need to be thinking through and praying through what, what is the gospel. Part of what we're wrestling with is perceptions. People have perceptions about evangelical Christians. A lot of people get uh, most of their information about what a Christian is from TV. Okay? Now, they came out with adult cartoons like in the 90s, in the early 90s. And one of the longstanding, uh, you know, most, most favorite Best, best, you know, rated ones of all uh, is The Simpsons, okay? They've lasted and lasted and lasted. And there's a scene where Homer is talking to his evangelical Christian neighbors, and the wife is there, and he says, hey, I haven't seen you for a while. Where have you been? And she replies this way. She says, oh, I've been off at Bible camp learning to be more judgmental. Right? 
And that's people's perceptions of Christians. They go, yeah, that's right. That's what, that's what those Christians are. And so that little nugget just kind of lodges in. And now as I'm talking to Mike about Christianity, I go, oh, you're one of those. Immediately, I'm kind of having to overcome that barrier. Do you see how there's just barriers that are up by, 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 by default? Now, the church has been doing this since the beginning. As missionaries in our culture, here's what I challenge you if you're a Christian. Study the culture, listen to the culture, love the people of this city enough to put out the energy to say, how can I, how can I get through to you about the love of Jesus? How can I communicate to you this life-giving message of Christ? And you know what? If you don't love people enough, you won't take the time to figure that out. Go read about Paul in Acts chapter 17. You know what he did? He just listened to their poets. He studied. The poets of our days are the musicians and, and TV makers and filmmakers and bloggers. And You know what? Go and study for the sake of other people, for the love of other people. And that's what the church has been doing for a really long time. Now, I want to talk to you this morning about the Jerusalem Council. Jerusalem Council sounds a little bit like a Jedi Council, and it is kind of like that, but their dress was a little bit less fancy. Okay, Not quite as elaborate, not quite as many uh, lightsabers, but there was this council of people that came together. You can read about it in Acts 15. Okay, I think I put it in your notes. You can just, you can just see it there. But, but the Jerusalem Council was this really important uh, time in the church's life. And what we're going to look at this morning in the scripture is talking about that. Here's what they're trying to figure out. How do we not put additional barriers in front of the gospel? We recognize that culturally there will always be barriers. How do we not put additional ones? What do we insist on and what do we have freedom in? Now, the immediate problem that Paul was addressing was what we've been talking about. There are these sham Christians, these fake Christians, who never really understood the gospel of grace. So what they did was they accepted the the great and mighty work of Jesus, and then they added their great and mighty work of circumcision, of ritual cleansing, of dietary laws, of all these mosaic laws. And so they took the work of Christ plus their work, and they said, now we're saved. Now we're made right with God. Is that the gospel? That's not the gospel. You add anything to it, and it poisons it. It flips it all around. So Paul is coming along, and he says, man, I've risked my life. I've now given my life to the very simple message that Christ gave me. The way home for a sinner to our great and holy God is this. It's simply through Jesus alone, by faith alone, by his grace alone. And that's it. There's nothing else that can or will or needs to be added to that. So the solution is that Paul goes to meet with the other apostles in Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And um, can I get someone to help my monitors show what's on the screen for me while I read? Thank you much. I'm not asking someone who's sitting down in front, but more in the back. Thank you. Someone's like... I. I think I'm led by the Lord right now to go help with that. Um, this is Galatians 2, 1 to 10. I'm just going to read this straight through. I'm going to read it from the message. Uh, the message is a transliteration. It's, it's, a, it's a guy who wanted his grandkids to understand the scriptures. And I just want to read it because it, it flows pretty nicely. You can fo- kind of follow along in your own translation this morning. But here it goes. It says, 14 years after that first visit, Barnabas and I went up to Jerusalem and took Titus with us. I went to clarify with them what had been revealed to me. At that time, I placed before them exactly what I was preaching to the non-Jews. I did this in private with the leaders, those who held esteem by the church. 
so that our concern would not become a controversial public issue marred by ethnic tensions, exposing my years of work to denigration and endangering my present ministry. Significantly, Titus, non-Jewish though he was, was not required to be circumcised. While we were in conference, we were infiltrated by spies pretending to be Christians who slipped in to find out just how free true Christians are. Their ulterior motive was to reduce us to the brand, to their brand of servitude. We didn't give in to them we, we, we didn't give them the time of day. We were determined to preserve the truth of the message for you. As for those who were considered important in the church, their reputation doesn't concern me. God isn't impressed with mere appearances, and neither am I. And of course, these leaders were able to add nothing to the message I had been preaching. It was soon evident that God had entrusted me with the same message to non-Jews as Peter had been preaching to the Jews. Recognizing that my calling had been given by God, James, Peter, and John, the pillars of the church, shook hands with me and Barnabas, assigning us to a ministry to the non-Jews, while they continued to be responsible for reaching out to the Jews. The only additional thing they asked was that we remember the poor, and I was already eager to do that. What is being discovered here and discussed here is this. What is central to the gospel? Is grace enough to save or must there be something else? And here's the answer that Paul is giving. He says the same message that I have been preaching now for how many years? Just says it, 14 years, right? I've been preaching the same thing for 14 years. And when I met up with the apostles for an appropriate visit, a a lengthy visit to really get in and discuss, what, what we discovered was we were both preaching the exact same message. You know why? We both received it from the same risen Jesus. The same coach gave us the playbook and sent us out. It's reinforcing that, man, this is directly from the same Jesus Christ. Now, this is massive in clarifying that there is one gospel, there's one good news, there's one road to salvation for the Jews, and the same for every other nation on the planet. Because the Gentile is a non-Jew, right? So, so that's all the other, all the other nations uh, have the same gospel. And that's massive for us to, to, to come to. Now, I didn't get there without some conflict. At, at kind of first glance, especially as you read this in the ESV and probably the, the NIV, most of the other translations capture this a little bit better, and I want to highlight it. It looks a little bit like, like Paul is throwing out almost some name-calling here in, in this letter. I've just kind of put some of these verses up on the screen for you um, so you can kind of see what, what, how Paul um, refers to the Jewish leaders. His tone... Which is always a little difficult in a letter. Seems a little bit, a little bit, a little bit snarky to me. He says this in verse two: those who seemed influential. Verse six: and from those who seemed to be influential, he says it again. Whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Those I say who seemed influential add nothing to me. And then in verse nine, he says those who seemed to be pillars in the church. 
Now, doesn't it stand to reason if he was just coming and offering their respect and, and all that, wouldn't he just say those who, who, who were pillars in the church, those who were leaders, those who were influenced, you know, influential, those who were men of reputation? But instead he adds this. And he adds it not just once, but he adds it at least four times, just kind of in there. So, so why is he doing that? That seems a little bit confusing. Is he putting them down? Is he casting doubt on their leadership? Does he have some kind of a chip on their shoulder? You know, what, what's he doing? We know that life is complex, and we know that relationships are complex. And because this really happened, and these are real people, and these are real relationships, what we're seeing in this letter is the complexity of life. We're seeing the complexity of relationships. Paul is a Christian leader, and sometimes Christian leaders are asked to walk into a situation and kind of walk this tightrope where they are called to give out really difficult, hard-hitting truth to someone and yet love them and offer it in a spirit of grace. It's not just Christian leaders. Christians are called to do that too. But sometimes into some very powder keg type situations, Christian leaders are, are asked to, to go in and do that. Paul is expressing here the basic unity that exists between him and the apostles. And yet what you can see is he's also distancing himself a little bit from, from them. And the reason for that is this. We're going to see this next week. Paul's going to get into a very specific one-on-one confrontation. You've seen the, the footage of like elephant seals going at it on the beach, you know, and like National Geographic Channel. Anyone else watch this stuff? I do. It's cool. Super slow-mo. I mean, spits flying, sands flying. There are two big wigs of the church, Peter and Paul. You hear them? They're going, they're going head-to-head next week. Okay? We're going to actually build a boxing ring in here. No, I'm just kidding. It'd be cool, though, wouldn't it? I mean, that'd be a cool way to do church. Just get in and duke it out. We're going we're gonna to watch two big wigs go head-to-head. About, about some things and see how do Christian leaders engage in conflict. But what's happening is Paul's not really all that thrilled with the Jerusalem leadership. In essence, if the Jewish leaders were leading in a way that was befitting what Christ gave to them and with boldness and with courage, then the Judaizers, the fake Christians, they wouldn't have even gained any ground. And Paul's not really that thrilled with that. So, so as, we, as we read this passage and we get Acts 15 and kind of the, the, the context, you know, you can hear something from someone and you go, I can't believe they said that. That doesn't seem like them. But then you get the whole story. And when you get the whole story, it actually reveals the character of the person. They go, wow, kudos to them to strike this balance of truth and yet fighting for grace and, and unity. Wow, that's, that's actually marvelous. That's what I, as, as I studied this passage, my, my, um, my impression of Paul's character rose. So I thought, wow, how many men, how many Christian leaders in this situation would walk in and kind of strike this balance of I'm not really happy with some of the things you guys are doing, but, but we're unified in this and that needs to be known. That's part of why he went and did it privately so that it didn't turn into this, this big uh, explosion kind of a thing. I have spent hours and hours in some very intense church meetings in my life. This is the third church I've served at. And what happens when you get sinful people that get saved, uh, they're still in process, so they still continue to sin. Anyone tracking with that? Please say yes, because you are, right? I am. And then when you get church leaders in there, what, what you have is you have people who are, 
who have been, who've been given the task to lead God's people, to shepherd God's people, and the decisions that, that are made in some of these, in some of these rooms and, and, and meetings have giant, giant uh, impact on, on a lot of people. I wish that I could say that every church meeting I ever went to and spent hours investing huge emotional energy in it came back with a great list of things that were accomplished that were positive. I can't say that. Some of them were. But as a person who has spent time in those kinds of meetings, here's what I would say about the Jerusalem Council. I don't envy the task that they had, but I'm so thankful that they went to battle and, and had the meeting. I want to just show you a couple, a couple of, of accomplishments, things, things that happened because this thing took place to clarify for the baby church some really important things. Here's one. One is that when Paul went to the Jerusalem Council and met with the other capital A apostles, those who actually walked with Jesus, saw him face to face, received their commission directly from him. That would be Paul and the other 11 plus 12, right? That is who was, who was added in. Here's, here's what happened. Paul was acknowledging the other apostles, the other 12's authority, without diminishing any of his own authority. So if I could put that in a word, he was showing unity. He was showing unity between the message he was preaching to non-Jews, a totally different culture, completely different questions being asked. People coming to faith in all kinds of different walks of life that are totally different from what's going on in Jerusalem. And yet there's, there's unity there. And Paul didn't come and grovel at the Jerusalem people's feet and say, oh, great and mighty apostles. No, he received the same message from the same risen Jesus. He was a capital A apostle. So he didn't diminish his own, but he acknowledged the authority of the, of the twelves. Number two is he showed a partnership. He pointed out that the belief of Paul and the twelve was, was unified. And yet the policies and the priorities and the methods were different. Now, that would make sense. If you're going out to plant a church in Jerusalem in the first century, you're going to have a certain set of parameters and priorities, correct? If you're going off to Rome and you're going to plant a church in Rome, it's going to be different. If you're going to go to rural countryside of Italy, it's going to look a little different, right? So Paul's coming along and saying, saying that, that there's, there's partnership here, but I don't, I don't buy into all the things that, that they're doing, and yet the message is still the same. Christians, hear this, Christians will always differ on the minors. And the list of minors is long and sorted through history, right? But Christians come together on the majors, and that's why it's so important for us to ask the question, what is central to the gospel? What is most important, right? All right, number three is this. It proved that the same gospel of grace is for all. What they discovered is this. It's the same message. Peter, you were sent to preach to Jews. Paul, you were sent to preach to non-Jews. Got it? There's our assignments. Let's go. It's the same, it's the same coach. And he's just sending us out to these different things. Here's what I want to say with this. Diversity in the body of Christ is fantastic. It's great that there are some churches that are just, they're disciple-making churches. They love to get Christians in there and just grow them deep in the word. There are other churches that are fantastic at, at just 
being out on the streets and being a servant. They're just known for that. There are other churches that emphasize evangelism. There are other churches that are really studious churches. There are other churches that are sending churches. There are other churches that are really generous, and God just blessed them, and they can't give it away fast enough. You know what churches do, though? Without finding the centrality of the cross and, and the worship of Jesus and the, centra, you know, the, the central uh, core of what the gospel is, they begin to fight and say, well, that church over there, they're, they're all about giving money. They think it's all about money. No, they don't. They don't. You've just never even taken time to, to go and kind of figure that out. So what happens is there's sometimes all these splinters that are there. We'll say this for another message, but are there reasons to disfellowship? Are there reasons not to partner? Absolutely. There are reasons to boot me out as your pastor if I begin to preach another gospel. You know why Paul, when he came and said, I want to make sure my preaching wasn't in vain? Some, some could read into that and say, well, was he starting to get, question his message? Absolutely not. He didn't want it to be in vain because people were coming in and accusing him of being different than the other apostles. Paul just got done saying, if an angel of God or I preach to you a different gospel, let him be accursed. So there's one way to salvation, but that diversity is good. Here's a side bonus of, of what was accomplished that day. I had bacon for breakfast yesterday. Thank you, Paul. Paul fought for that. I don't have to live as a Jew with bacon. Anyone with me on bacon? I mean, I mean, for weeks I can preach, but if I mention bacon, people are cheering. That came out of the Jerusalem Council, okay? All right, here's, here's our application for, the, for this morning. We have, a, we have a small group. We have a, we have a community called Theology and Life. It's led by, by Mr. Phil back there in the back, Tuesday nights. And what Theology and Life is, is doing is, is our application this morning. It's to say that the stuff we're talking about, the stuff that comes out of boring church meetings called the Jerusalem Council, has impact on real people. The things that you believe about God, in fact, I, I believe this to be true, what you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Paul, in this short ten verses, is, is modeling for us taking doctrine and theoretical and hypothetical and moving it right to the concrete. Here's one of the ways he does that. He does that by not regarding the bigwigs of Jerusalem by the flesh. Remember Paul was super into that for a while? He was super into climbing the ranks. He was up and coming rabbi of the year, right? Now, none of that matters to him. That's part of the tone you know, it doesn't really matter what people call them. God doesn't show partiality. I view people as what they are in the spirit, as who they are in Christ or who they aren't in Christ, not by their titles, not by their accomplishments. You know what the application for you and I is? Do the same. Do the same with yourself. And if you come into church not feeling like you're worthy to be worshiping with God's people because of your lack of accomplishment this week, you know what that is? It's this subtle heresy coming into your life. Don't you need the songs that we sing? Don't you need the scriptures to just remind you, oh yeah, it's not about that. It's not about the promotion I did or didn't get. I'm no closer to God, no more loved by God because I got my you know, Gold Star Awana Award this week or whatever it might be that, that, that you did or didn't achieve. The second way that he brings it to a concrete place is Titus. And this is beautiful. Titus is a test case. He's a Greek who isn't circumcised. And I love that Paul brings him to Jerusalem, right? The high and holy place of the Jews. And he's basically saying this, all right, this guy right here, Titus, a little awkward for Titus, he's not circumcised. He's like, can we move on? Is he in or not? 
You tell me, is, is, is grace enough? Is he in the family of God or is he not? Do you see how concrete that is? That's real life. We preach that Christ did it all and we can't add anything to him being saved or not. So would we now impose one more rule on this brother? And it was walked away saying, no, absolutely not. He's in. He's in. Why? Because of what Jesus did. That's it. So that's a concrete, real-life test case. Paul gets a little bit uh, snippety about this in Philippians 2. Just listen. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about those who would say, you can become a Christian, but to be a real Christian, we need to perform a circumcision on you. Then he says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I want the band to come up right now, and they are going to lead us in a song. And what I want you to catch from this song, it's called Love That Will Not Let Me Go. I want you to hear the passive voice that this song is sung from. It's not love that I don't let go of. It's not something I do. It's something being done for me. I love in Corinthians where it talks about people who were promiscuous, people who were greedy, people who were homosexuals, people who were uh, gluttons. And they got saved. They got washed by the blood of Christ. And it says this, you were saved. You were washed. You were redeemed. Who's doing it? Not you. It was done to you. It was done for you. I want to wrap up by looking at verse 10. It's not just that they were unified in their message. It's not just that they talked a bunch of theology and doctrine. It impacted real people. It had concrete results. Verse 10 says this, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. You see, being, being loved, like we just talked about, it changes a person for forever. And all of a sudden, there's, there's action that's, that's stirred in the heart of someone. Now, the church at her absolute best through the ages has done what her Lord and Savior did, and that is to preach the good news amongst the poor. And um, this morning, probably most of you in this room don't realize this, but this Sunday is our seventh anniversary as a church. It was 2006. Yeah. And God, God has been so faithful. There's a handful of faces that have been here since, since day one. And God's been so faithful to this church. And let me tell you one of the hallmarks of what God has done. We called this, this church the new thing. We didn't have a name for the church yet. We just said God's doing something new. He's doing a new thing. And you can go on our website and kind of read how this church came to be and, and how God was faithful. But what God has done in this location for the last seven years is he has filled it with Christians who obey this verse. They are eager to help the poor. They're eager, eager to remember the poor. And it's just been a joy, and I can't wait to see what the next seven years looks like. 
There's something else significant about this particular Sunday, and that's this. There's something called Orphan Sunday that happens every year, and it's this morning. And what's, what's really cool is we have taken our entire month of November and done Orphan Month and kind of had this, this emphasis for, for four weeks. But instead, we're kind of cramming it into to, to one week uh, this year. But here's what's cool about this church. It's not like we just kind of raise this you know, one week a year and then let it fall off the table. It's really something that, that there's a, a unique heartbeat to what God has done here. But with Orphan Sunday, um, these are, this is off their website. It really is worldwide. These are pins of people who have said, we're hosting an event for Orphan Sunday. And if you kind of zoom in to the U.S., we are one of those pins crammed in there in the, in the Bay Area. And right now, this morning, there are people around the globe who are just calling Christians to say, hey, let's not forget. Let's remember the poor. Let's remember the fatherless. And in your community groups this week, you're going to be just, just hit with just a smattering of some of the, the verses in Scripture that, that talk about this and highlight this. Now, we have um, a video that I want to show to you right now, and um, it, it really just depicts this. It depicts the fact that the Spirit of God is on the move in our world. And the fact that the beliefs and prayers of real people impact the lives of real children and change real families forever. And there are many in this room who can attest to that firsthand. Well, listen, uh, awesome to, to get to worship together, isn't it? Just good to be together as God's people. Um, this is not a, a one-time Sunday thing for us uh, at this church. There's going to be lots of opportunities in the weeks ahead to just be... Um, kind of finding, finding your place about where God might be leading you to, to invest in him. And all these different opportunities are on our website 24-7. You can go kind of read about them. Um, but this, this week in particular, we're, we're focused on, on orphan care. Let me pray, and then we'll dismiss. Father, thanks for meeting us here uh, in a great way. And we just, um, we're just grateful for you, God. We're grateful for uh, seven years at this location. For many of us, God, for some of us, this is our first week or only been here a short time, and we're just entering um, kind of what, what you're doing here. But God, we thank you for faithful churches that have, um, that, have, that have done the hard work of translating the gospel for this culture for a long time. And God, we just recognize that, that we're part of that. We thank you for, um, for choosing us in this generation. I pray that we'd be found faithful as a church. I pray we'd be found faithful as Christians, God, that we wouldn't give up, that we wouldn't uh, fade, that we wouldn't wander, that we wouldn't pollute the gospel. Uh, we thank you, God, for loving us this morning. We thank you for that love that will not let us go. We, we rest in that. Uh, we walk confidently in that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.